This morning, we are going to launch into a new series, and then, of course, uh, I do schedule guests once a month as well, although I've been off for three Sundays in a row in terms of preaching. Uh, thank you, COVID, and thank you, vacation. And so I'm so glad to be back at this, but it's good to have time off as well and uh, refreshing. And so this morning, we're going to begin a short series this summer on stories, uh, some of my favorite stories in Scripture. And the Scripture is full of stories, and, and we'll talk a little more about that in a second. But I want to, if I'm going to frame the whole series, it would be this, tell me a story, tell me a story. And particularly today, we're going to look at a passage in Luke, Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. The story often called the story of the good Samaritan or the helpful Samaritan is how it's often been titled historically. Now, before I get into this, I want to tell you another true story that happened uh, when I remember some years ago when I was living back and in the... uh, in the, in the land of South Dakota, way back, uh, one winter, we were driving down a street, and it was snowy, and the snow was coming down, and it's always snowing in winter, and blowing, and all of that, and wind, lots of wind, always wind in South Dakota. And we were going down a side street that was next to a main arterial street. The main street, I think, was Kiwanis, and we were in a block in. And we were driving in a little Jetta. It was a 99 Jetta. Anyone ever drive a Jetta? You know, okay, little Jetta, all right. Um, and we're driving in this little Jetta, and we got stuck and kind of pulled into a driveway or, or jammed into someone's driveway, in fact. And it was snowing, and we were, I think, probably leaving a friend's house to head home. And uh, the car was stuck and started rocking and all that. But, it, but, you know, we started to work at getting it unstuck. And as we were working at getting it unstuck, there was a big pickup truck, Lots of pickup trucks, by the way, in South Dakota. I think that's probably like Alberta and Manitoba to translate that into can- Canadian. Um, big truck comes in, four, four-wheel drive, big truck, and these two young guys jump out, and they're like, hey, do you need some help to get unstuck? And, and we're just like, well, yeah, absolutely. That would be great, which is not uncommon in a place like South Dakota that people would help your neighbor if your neighbor was stuck. So they got out and asked, hey, uh, do you need some help getting unstuck? And we're like, yeah, for sure. Otherwise, we'd probably take us, we could probably get it out. But, and, and they said, well, great. It'll be, I forget what it was. I think they said something like, if you got 20 bucks, it'll be 20 bucks. <laughs> when I think of the story of the Good Samaritan, these guys come to mind. They were not the Good Samaritans. <laughs> They were opportunistic pirates on the snowstorm prairie. Uh, and uh, so anyway, I was I was. Like, no way. Number one, I was a church planter and, and, and poor church planter, early church planters. Like, yeah, no, I'm not giving 20 bucks to these guys. So I just waved them off. And, you know, I was raised in snowstorms and wind, and so I know what to. So we kept, got in the car and rocked the car and did all the things and got the car out on our own. But those guys were definitely not good Samaritans. 20 bucks, we'll help you out. Yeah, way to go. <laughs> Keep going. Get your beer money from somebody else. All right. Stand with me this morning. We're going to read this text, and then I want us to talk through the parable of the Good Samaritan. If you're able to do so, stand with me this morning. And if you have a Bible or your app, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, the Gospel of Luke. So in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the first four books in the New Testament. And then we're going to dig into this a little bit as one of, uh, tell me a story, one of my favorite stories here, and one of the most well-known stories of Jesus' parables. So we're going to start at verse 25. Says this, now an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, Well, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? 
And the expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, gold star, do this and you will live. But the expert wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And so Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off leaving him half dead. Verse 31. Now by chance a priest, a priest was going down that road. But when he saw the injured man, he passed on the other side of the road. So to a Levite, a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed on the other side of the road. But a Samaritan, who was traveling, came to where the injured man was. And when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring olive oil and wine on them. And then he put him on his own animal, put him on his own animal, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Verse 35, the next day he took out two silver coins, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of this guy, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? Verse 37, the expert in the religious law said to Jesus, the one who showed mercy on him. And so Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we have this opportunity to gather. And thank you for those that are here in this place on this beautiful day, taking time to pause in their week and to tune themselves to your spirit in community. Lord, we trust that as we have taken faith to be here today, you will meet us where we were at, but not leave us there. So Lord, let us lean into this story and ask, what is the next step you have for us as individuals? What is some of the next steps or steps we may have as a church? In Jesus' name, amen, amen. You're going to be seated this morning. When looking up different resources on the Good Samaritan and stories and illustrations, there are so many good Samaritan stories out there of people doing good in the most basic ethical level of this parable. And if you want to, just search sometime the people doing good deeds unexpectedly been forced into the environment or into the moment, and it will give you some reassurance that there is the work of the Spirit in larger humanity, that there is some good stuff out there in people's lives. But I want to remind you today of a couple things regarding this story. Um, I want to just talk about a little bit of overview, and then I want to just dig through the story a little more, if we can do that. Can we do that this morning? Yeah? Amen? You with me? All right? All right. First thing I want to say today is that there's two basic kind of stories we're going to look at in the next few weeks together, two, two basic kinds of stories. And these are my categories, per se. They're not necessarily some, uh, you know, the, the basic way for me to think about it is there's two basic kinds of stories in the Bible. There are stories that are actual events read through the ancient genres of history or biography, uh, ancient standards, not our modern standards, 
but there's ancient history, there's ancient prose and poetry that's also uh, relayed through this. So there's events that are relayed in stories, and some of the stories we're going to share do correspond with actual events. Uh, Many historians and biblical scholars would agree. And then there's other kinds of stories, Uh, and this is the kind of story we're looking at today, these sort of teaching stories or parables, as it were. And parables are those things that are subversive, they take sort of what would be a normal plot line of a well-known, well-crafted story in a, in a culture, but then a parable, as Jesus tells a parable, has some, some characters are switched out, or there's something unique about it that becomes subversive than the standard plot line of a teaching story. Uh, the, the author, or the, uh, Tim Mackey in the Bible Project gives us a nice breakdown regarding the types of parables there are. And just for a moment, I just want to give you a geek out a little bit about parables and types of parables, and then we're going to jump into this parable and ask some questions, and what is it asking of us today? Um, he gives a nice breakout, and I really like it. He said, first, there's parables about surprising arrival and nature of God's kingdom, the surprising arrival of and nature of God's kingdom. So that's the first kind of parable, the parables about the unique nature of the kingdom of God. Uh, and just because you know I like to irritate you, and this is obviously you are, it's a free will organization, but if, you, if you're willing to say it with me, first kind of parable, kingdom of God. Let's say kingdom of God together. Kingdom, kingdom of God. God. All right, all right, wonderful. Thank you for playing. Really appreciate that. The kingdom as Jesus was bringing it in through his healings and exorcisms and his surprising meals or table fellowship, invitation to sinners and outsiders. And that's the parable we're looking at today reflects a bit on this type of parable. The second one, again, and this also overlaps with the Good Samaritan, why the Good Samaritan is such a powerful story, powerful parable of Jesus, uh, is the surprising or upside-down value system of the kingdom. Parables about forgiveness, parables about how God's kingdom reshapes your views of, of wealth or money, Tim Mackey goes on, or how it reorients you to think about the poor, or how you think about social economic status, or how you think about invitations to enter the kingdom. It's this irreligious upside-down value system that some parables talk about again. And then the third kind of parable here is the crisis parables. Uh, Say that with me if you're willing to. Crisis parable. Crisis parable. And these are parables where one or two characters are being forced with a decision. And this definitely, the Good Samaritan also obviously overlaps this category as well. People are forced with a decision within the story. Some make the right decision. Some make a foolish decision. And there are consequences, usually serious consequences. And uh, so this idea of a crisis parable, these are also the stories of Frat when like, the landowner goes away and, and empowers his uh, subordinates and then he comes back to, to make an accounting. That's another type of crisis parable as well. There's one other thing I want to say about time of background before we just dig into the story a little more here, uh, is this idea of holiness and commonness, pure and impure within the Bible. And today I don't have time to unpack this fully, but there's some great stuff. I keep recommending the Bible Project. I just go to the Bible Project, start listening to their podcasts, watch, they they do some great stuff, really solid stuff. Um, There's some other podcasts we recommend too for discipleship. But if you want to grow as a student of the Bible, besides stuff we do here and teaching and discipleship courses and Bible studies and home church, uh, I get some good podcasts where you're learning more about how the Bible actually works. Uh, Because there's so much nonsense about the Bible out there. Drives me batty from the far left and the far right. Like people either treat it like a magic book or treat it like a bunch of garbage. And in fact, it's somewhere totally different direction in terms of how the Holy Spirit speaks through scripture, through people, through time and experience. But Bible Project's great. So in 
the Old Testament context, in the ancient Jewish context, there was this, this, this understanding that some things were set apart for God, and if something was set apart for God, it is holy, right? And if something is not, in that sense, dedicated specifically to the task of the Lord, it is common. And in this sense, neither one of them is bad per se, um, but there can be things that are violated uh, in terms of in God's presence or not. I'm not going to unpack that all today. But holiness ultimately has to do with this proximity to Yahweh in the Old Testament. Uh, and so keep in mind, when we get into our story, there are two classes of people here that worked in the temple, either directly in the temple in ancient Jerusalem or in the ministry around supporting the work of the temple. The priest and the Levite would have been concerned about holiness, commonness, and then the second category here of pure and impure. And Tim talks about this. He says, purity, these categories are reserved for common things, not holy things. Uh, so ideally, being in a pure is the state of wholeness or shalom or peace. Uh, it's not so much about sin. Sin is a, another force. But this language, so that we break this out, and I could do a whole sermon on this and probably should at some point about how this all ties in because this stuff is referenced then in Jesus and what Jesus is doing. And the unique thing about Jesus in the New Testament regarding all of this is that he, so, so the corpse or the guy that might be half dead, if he's dead... If a priest or Levite goes near, they become ceremonially unclean, and then they have to go through a purification ritual to keep doing their ministry. Um, and, there, and there's a whole bunch of process about this. Basically, anything related to death or the appearance of death or the sense of death or life leaving the body in any way, shape, or form, um, physically, symbolically, that, that is something that then messes with and makes, causes an impurity that then has to be purified if they're going to do certain ministries. So this is all in the background of the story of the guy on the side of the road. So this is important to know. Like, we don't think through all of this today, although most of us culturally do have taboos. Like, um, I think uh, Tim, Tim has a great illustration of most of us in our culture, um, we don't eat in the bathroom or the washroom, right? How many of you eat in the washroom? Right? Because there's something like taboo in terms of pure like we, I mean, we know more scientifically now about when you flush that toilet and all of that too and what it sends into the air. But we, we have taboos like this as well today, right? Uh, so there's just a lot more of those within ancient Judaism regarding our, our relationship with one another and creation and stuff. Okay, I've said enough about that. There's a whole lot more you can dig into. I encourage you to dig into it on your own. Some great stuff. Again, I'm doing a huge plug for Bible Project today. Go there. You can learn all kinds of stuff about these categories and how they impact Old Testament and New Testament. So let's get to today's tale a little more here today. Are you still with me? Amen? Amen. So the context of what's going on, I gave you a little bit here. But what happened in the immediate context of Luke's uh, telling about Jesus' life, his ancient biography called the gospel here, is he had just given this summary of the law to love God and love one's neighbor. And so now it goes deeper. In Luke's gospel, uh, Jesus is not telling us the summary of the law. He puts that summary in the words of this lawyer, this studier of the scripture, and by the way, this kind of lawyer is not lawyer as in um, uh, civil law as, in, as we would think of it. It's a lawyer as in Torah. Like he was someone who would wrestle with Midrash and understanding the law, the religious law of Israel. If you have any Roman Catholic background within the Catholic Church, there's something called canonical law or the laws of the church, as it were, through all of the councils and dictates and all the stuff. And so there are lawyers within that Roman Catholic tradition that would be a similar uh, correlative or correlation with this kind of lawyer for the religious law within ancient Judaism, also known as a scribe as well. And so in Luke's gospel, in Matthew, Mark, uh, in Matthew, Mark, and John, these words are in Jesus' mouth, but Luke puts it in this parable, Jesus, the story of Jesus, this parable uh, to put the words into uh, the mouth of someone else. 
Uh, and so Jesus then provides the commentary or what would have been called midrash in parable form. So he uses the story form to tell. Okay, so a few other things historically, and then we'll walk through the verses uh, this morning. There's a couple things to understand about this story. And I'm going to point this out as we talk about stories here, that usually there's a primary reading and there may be an alternative reading. Andreas, in one of his last messages, did a nice job of talking about an alternative reading about the woman at the well. You remember that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So he gave an alternative reading in John 4 regarding the nature of who she was. It's an alternative reading because there's also a good argument that the other way of seeing her uh, life in, through, through uh, sexual sin and brokenness, but there's an alternative reading, and he gave us that powerful message on the alternative reading What's going on here. In this parable, there's also an alternative reading. The, one of the classic ways to understand it, other than just a simple ethical morality tale, be a good neighbor, don't be a jerk, help somebody on the side of the road, which Torah talked about, you could ignore religious ritual uh, rules to help your neighbor in need or someone that is in, in danger of losing their life. Um, there's certainly that piece of it. And then the other traditional reading is that an emphasis on the strife between the Samaritans and other Jews. And and the one reading of this is that they are two completely different ethnicities or different people, and that there is a strong, um, we, we almost read modern racism back into it. By the way, uh, when you do that, that's called anachronism. When you take something from your time and you force it on something in a time before that didn't even think exactly that way. Um, but often it's read that way. Like there's this racial tension. There's this really division here. And, and so there's a, a strong hatred between uh, the proper Jews and the Samaritans. The alternative reading, and, and we'll use some of that today, but the alternative reading is to say, in fact, the Samaritans were considered part of greater Judaism. And I love how a guy named Michael Chalmers talks about this, says that, in fact, this hostility has been overplayed, and there is not actually that high level of attention that Samaritans, by most Jews, were considered part of greater Israel. They were connected with the northern tribes that were separated. And, and so the Samaritan role is a little different. While there is a tension there, for sure, and it develops more later, and there's a tension a little bit in Luke, but the idea of that it's a complete hostility is a bit of an overplay with this parable. And so when we look back at it, then we have to ask, so then how do we read these characters in there? If it's not like this strong racial animosity between them, what do we do with this? And that preaches for sure. But let's read this quote. Uh, yes, sometimes there was hostility, but there's little evidence that Samaritans in first century Palestine were ever understood by Jews as so decisively other, like one way, uh, Jill Levin, uh, who is... A Jewish commentator uses this parable, actually talks about, well, the best way to preach this parable, and I would disagree, I like a lot of her stuff, but I disagree on this, but she would say it would be like going into uh, an Israeli audience making a Palestinian the hero of the story. And, and Chalmers is saying, well, no, in fact, that's an over-reading of this. That's not actually how strict of a, of a division there was between uh, the, large, the Jewish society at large and Samaritans. So he goes on and says, so decisively other that a Samaritan appearance would immediately invoke hatred or signal enmity. And so the alternative reading that he is proposing, the opposite seems to have been the case. Samaritan Israelites, and he uses that phrase to remind us, they were considered part of greater Judaism. Samaritan Israelites often remained and integrated, remained integrated into a common concept of what the people of God Israel were or was. And so this is an alternative reading of this parable. But what that does is it shifts how we interpret it and ask the so what questions. And let's talk about that, how it shifts, again, if they're part of the complex or the whole of common Judaism. Okay, that was my geeking out. Uh, did you survive? Yes? Yeah. Okay, all right, thank you. All right, good, good. 
So here we have uh, on the road to Jerusalem. Let's look through this verse by verse, and then we'll land it here. Uh, now, an expert in the religious law stood up and tested him, saying, and I'm going to go fast, so get your listening ears on. Uh, so we're told again, this religious law stands up to test Jesus, which would have been just a proper way of having this engagement with a rabbi. So he treats him as at least an equal, if not higher than himself in this text. And he's concerned about what he must do to inherit eternal life. And again, this is a common concern of Jews in the first century. How does one enter into the life of the world that is to come? But it's also baiting Jesus as well. And it's interesting too, he also focuses on himself. Like I, where is the boundary, Jesus, between you and the rest of us? What do you think you have that's so special? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, Jesus tells us, well, what's written in the law? Man, this is a great teacher. Like, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm a mid-level teacher, but we've got, like, we've got uh, teachers here of grade school and, and all that. Where's Maureen at? Where's our teacher? Oh, oh there she is right there. Like a good teacher right there. Like, at least with, well, I suppose it depends on the age of the person. But here, he asks a question back. He doesn't answer the student's question. He asks a question of the student to get the student to probe and to figure out the motive in the student's question and also to see if the student can reveal what they know or what they don't know. And so Jesus puts the question back on him, and he says, answer your own question. And this makes him show his cards. What counts as righteousness? What's in the heart motive? What's the motive behind the lawyer's question? And verse 27 and 28, again, he gives this great combination. And this is a marvelous combination of things here. He combines Deuteronomy 6.5, which is part of the Shema, which is the most basic creed within Judaism, along with Leviticus 19.18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, meaning the totality of all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. I just said, well done, gold star, you get it. You got it, way to go. But the lawyer senses there's more to this. There's something else going on here. And of course, Jesus is probably provoking him as well by saying, way to go, move along. <laughs> he says, but wanting to justify himself, what does he want to do? And this is where this begins to get the rub and then when, before we jump into the parable quickly when we land this here this morning. But the expert wanting to justify him says, then who is my neighbor? He wants to know where are the lines. Remember, we spent a lot of time talking about center set and bounded set and we'll visit that at least once more in the fall. But um, he wants to know where the line is. Where's the boundary, Jesus? Where's the line on who is my neighbor? Who is not my neighbor? Who do I not have to care about? Who is not my neighbor is really what he's asking. Where's the line? Where's the boundary? Because he, like so many of us, wants to just tick off a couple boxes, call it good, and then put it back on the shelf and live the rest of his life. But this is not the kind of claims that Jesus puts out there when the Holy Spirit is wooing and drawing you. He's calling you into a new kind of humanity to change this whole concept. He's like, get over trying to write people off. And this is where the parable kicks in here. Note, the lawyer doesn't ask, define love for me, Jesus. Define God for me, Jesus. Define self. But he asks, who do I not have to care about? Doesn't that reveal a whole lot about us? Who is it that you want to write off this morning? Who is it that you just want to completely, you know what? I'm going to just put them in a box. And I'm going to put this thing on a shelf. I, or I did my good deed. Tick the box. Put it on. I'm good. I'm done. See you later. This whole thing, this question of who is not my neighbor, Luke sets up in this parable for what gets unfolded when the church gets launched in the book of Acts. Because in the book of Acts, 
The kingdom of God is continually expanding and the who is my neighbor question keeps getting expanded and expanded and expanded. Well, of course, who is my neighbor? Well, the initial converts were all religious or were Jews within that Jerusalem con- or within the, the ancient Israel context. And then we find out in Acts that not only those Jews, but then when the spirit comes, Hellenistic Jews, Jews that would have compromised culturally with Greek and Roman culture that were enmeshed with the Roman culture by other Jews were considered not Jewish enough. So Hellenistic Jews, they are now included because the spirit falls on Acts chapter two and men and women who are visiting from the colonies of Rome who would have been Hellenized Jews begin to hear and the, the language of, of, of God's gospel and Jesus being spoken in their language and many of them become believers. Thousands were told, Hellenistic Jews. And then we find out that the spirit falls on Samaritans. So Israelite, that's even greater expansion of Israel, the Samaritan Jews in Acts. And then we find out in Acts, not only does it expand there, now God-fearing Gentiles, Gentiles who had converted uh, or who did not fully convert, just short of circumcision, converted to being uh, partially Jews, God-fearing Gentiles. They become part of the church. And then we begin to have pagan and Greco-Roman Gentile converts with no background in the law, no background in Old Testament, as we would call it, or Torah and they experience the Holy Spirit and they become followers of Jesus and they get empowered by the Holy Spirit with gifts and signs and speaking in tongues and all of the things. And then we have Acts 11 where there's the accusations of eating with uncircumcised people. The church keeps expanding and expanding and expanding. Who is not my neighbor becomes less a smaller and smaller and smaller circle throughout the expansion of the church even up until this day. Under the Spirit's leadership, we overcome xenophobia, we overcome those divisions based on culture or background or social economic class. Galatians is all about the church not being divided. In fact, Galatians tells us that if we are focusing on a monocultural church, we've got a problem. We need to dethrone some of those things while celebrating all cultures, but yet we don't want to be monocultural. In fact, Galatians, Paul is all, I think Paul would go into many of our churches in Vancouver and tell us, okay, you've been doing it this way for so long, it's time to blow it up. We need to look like the diversity of the kingdom of God. I think we are on a good track here at Pilgrim, but we got a lot of work to do. And our divisions may be more about social economic. Well, anyway, more I can say about that. God just slammed the door. Amen. Preach it, Jesus. All right. <laughs> Who is not my neighbor? And so, okay, the parable quick here. And Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. By the way, it was always going up to Jerusalem, the idea of going up to Jerusalem, the holy city on the hill, and then going down. And Jericho is about 27 kilometers away or 17 miles. And this was a rocky, desolate area, and it was well known for robbers. And robbers were there even up until like a century and a half ago. It was well known for robbers. Um, And so this place where it was easy to prey on people as they're traveling on the road. And then it tells us again, verse 31 and 32, a priest, a priest who was the highest social, economic, and and religious and holy class. Priests were those that were not only of the subgroup of the family tribe of the Levites or Levi, they were of the sons of Aaron, descendants of Aaron, to be a priest within the tribe of Levi. And then it tells us a Levite, who was not a descendant of Aaron, was also going, and they pass on the other side. They pass on the other side. I like how one commentator says, there's a pattern here. They come by... They look, and then they go on. <laughs> they, they come by, they, they look, or they do, and then they go away. They're concerned maybe with ritual purity. We're not told in the text why. And we could talk a lot about that idea of ritual purity. Maybe they were concerned, even though they were coming from Jerusalem, so they weren't going to be serving immediately. They would have had time to go through the rituals of purification. 
But those rituals of purification were kind of a pain in the rear. Like they'd have to go back into the temple, then stand in the outer court if you were a priest. A very shameful kind of thing, even though it shouldn't have been shame. It was a normal part of becoming back. But there was still some shame involved with that. Like there would have been a lot of work to go through that again whenever their next cycle of service would have been. But they weren't immediately heading to Jerusalem. They were coming from Jerusalem. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. I like how Richard Vincent says, since the narrative doesn't name the two nor explain why they acted as they did, the listener or the reader can fill in the gaps in all sorts of ways. And often we will, depending on his experience with clergy. Have you ever had a pastor be a jerk to you? Are you talking about me? Come on now. (laughs) Sorry, I apologize. I'm not perfect. Uh, But I mean, like, it's left intentionally open to think about all your bad church experiences, right? Oh, man, the priest, the Levite, the pastor, the father, the whatever, the whatever. Uh, But it allows us to sort of fill in the gaps imaginatively, and that's one of the nice or frightening things about parables. And then verse 33, it turns quick. We're almost done. Hang with me. Say amen if you're still awake. Okay. All right. Five of us. Good. We'll keep going. But a Samaritan who was traveling, a Samaritan, but a Samaritan. Now, in the traditional reading, we could certainly go off on this and say, for some of the most religious Jews, the Samaritans were not, they, they wanted to exclude Samaritans from greater Israel, even though Samaritans were part of greater Israel. And it would have triggered, like, there was some enmity and strife between. There's a whole history of, of, of how the northern kingdom split up and the Samaritans creating another place of worship. But in general, it was also expected that the Samaritan, in a normal context, Samaria would be a hospitable place, just like oh, greater Israel. So there's, there's some tension there. But if we did more of that classic reading, we can see this, but a Samaritan, someone who was totally other, someone who there was hatred and strife and, and envy with, the Samaritan turns up being the good guy in the story. And the priest uh, or, or the, those that would have thought less of Samaritans would have been triggered by this. But a Samaritan did this. Samaritan did this. Again, the Samaritan stops. The religious layman stops. He acts on the knowledge of the goodness he has. He acts with compassion. And then we're told in the next few verses, he takes care of him. He does the things of healing. He pours the oil. He does what would have been the ancient world um, first responder stuff for this guy. And not only that, he puts him on his own beast, his own burden. And Samaritans would have followed the same purity and religious laws as the priest and the Levite. They would have followed the same things. They were considered greaters and would have been Jewish in their responses. So he's defiling his own beast of burden. He's putting this guy on there and he's walking alongside. That's actually doing something, uh, lowering himself in some ways to do this. So the Samaritan gives of what he has to take care of him, takes him to an inn. And it's risky for him to take him to an inn, by the way. If you show up in the ancient world in an inn with a beaten person, you could also be held liable or your family for them or for their death uh, because they would just transfer it to the clan. And so you show up, with he's risking stuff, even taking care of the guy himself. And he takes him to the end. I like how several aspects of love are on display here. He engages with wounded. He stays with him until he knows he's going to survive He expresses his love and extravagant generosity about two days' wages and promises more if necessary. And note, the innkeeper as well is is a character in this story. And the innkeeper, while not at the level of the helpful Samaritan, is a fellow Israelite and he acts too. Not selflessly, he's paid for his troubles, but he's the sort of normal human goodness that we all count on here in the innkeeper. People who do their jobs honestly, fairly, even compassionately, So we don't have to spend all our lives watching our backs. So we see this in the innkeeper as well. 
Of course, we get to the very end here, and it's asked this. Which of these was a neighbor to the man? Back to the Jewish lawyer. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man? And the expert in religious law said, the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Vincent says this, the parable, the story that Jesus tells, shifts the questions to from who will I accept ministry? Will I accept it from an impure heretic Samaritan? The original Jewish audience, he says this, must enter into the ditch and accept a Samaritan as a savior, helper, and healer. They must experience being touched by this unclean enemy in the traditional reading who treats a wounded man as a compatriot. One must see something positive, not only in one's own self, but in the other who becomes a potential caregiver to oneself. If you're the beaten person on the side of the road is what he's saying here. This parable requires you to embrace the Samaritan Israelite as one who brings healing and deliverance. Now, let me pause before I wrap it, and I truly will be wrapping it. Um, In the early church, they read this allegorically. The various church fathers, and I'm sure the mothers as well, saw this parable in a little different way. The man on the road was Adam in Genesis, and by extension, all of us. And the religious leaders, the priests and the Levite, were the religious system and the religious trapping and those that are trying to uh, see their way through sort of this following rigidly the law as they understood it. And Jesus is seen as the Samaritan. In the early church, they understood this parable in the sense that Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who is being used. He is the one who represents Israel expanded for all people everywhere. Jesus is the one who enters into the pain. And the inn and the innkeeper are the church in Christ. And Christ will return one day to the church to straighten it out. That would be an, an old ancient allegory reading of this parable. And so this parable calls us into thinking differently about our relationships with the other. This idea of Israel expanded by telling the parable in the alternative reading, Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, the kingdom of God is greater than just the priests and the Levites and and Judaism within Judea. It also, I am here to bring back the lost tribes and people of Israel. I am here to expand the kingdom of God and to restore the Samaritans, those that are Israel expanded. And so he begins in his ministry to show what gets expanded even more when we see, when he commands his disciples that you are to take this message to all nations, all ethnicities, all people everywhere, to the ends of the earth. And that expansion is in reclaiming what was God's original people, but now he's going to expand it even beyond the boundaries of the Samaritans as well. Jesus identifies with that and calls us into it. And then again, it reminds us this idea of what does it mean to be a neighbor? In fact, it flips it on its head and says, you are called to become a neighbor. You are called to engage as a neighbor. Don't ask who is not my neighbor. Ask how am I becoming a neighbor to those in my life around me. As we love, we are changed and we participate in changing others. So let me land it with these reminders. 
In this parable, we see sins of commission actively doing in the beating and the injustice, the violence that led to the destruction or the, this man being beat within an inch of his life. We see sins of omission, of good not being done that should have been done by those that supposedly are all about the goodness of God and the shalom of God. Justo Gonzalez says this, Jesus means to go, means for us to go and become a neighbor to those in need. It's not only just about those who are near us, but drawing near to those for whatever reason, racial, ethnic, theological, political, whatever category you want to put in there, may seem alien to us. Let me pause that and say, who is it that God is calling you to cross the road with to get to know better, to become a neighbor with? Who is it that makes you really uncomfortable? That might be who the Holy Spirit is saying, it's time for you to learn and to go and do likewise and become a neighbor to that person. We're called to look for opportunities to neighbor. And I ask you this week, would you have your eyes open for someone that God would call you to be a neighbor to? To pray for those divine opportunities to display mercy and to receive mercy because it really is a two-way street, by the way. This parable calls us to become a neighbor. It also calls us to ask, why does injustice exist? It calls us to align ourselves with the victims. It calls us to align ourselves with the person who's been beat down by society, by world, by robbers, whether they're spiritual forces of wickedness or forces of wickedness within humans of hatred and strife and destruction. It calls us to align ourselves with victims. And finally, we are reminded of this, that Jesus comes to all of us as our good Samaritan. Bernard Scott said this, grace comes to those who have no other alternative than to accept it. He is so low, he cannot help but receive. The man that is beaten on the side of the road has no choice but to receive the grace, the ministry of the good Samaritan. Are you beaten up today? Are you feeling like world or maybe the religious have just beaten you to a pulp in one way or the other? And we're in a church context, so you're probably going to bear those wounds internally more than externally. And maybe people like me have failed you. Maybe the priests and the Levites, the pastors, the fathers, the mothers have failed you. But I want you to know today that the kingdom of God is ultimately about God and about Jesus. And Jesus comes and he comes to us even when we can't receive it. Even if we don't want to receive it, he comes and he offers healing. I have good news to you today. God is near to you. Will you accept his mercy? And will you be people if you are in process of being healed by God's mercy? Will you be one who gives mercy? The church is not often known in North America for its mercy. It's known for its judgment. It's known for its inauthenticity. It's known for its failures. It's known for beating people up and leaving them on the side of the road or at the very least walking by the other side of the road. But can we become a church of the Good Samaritan? Can we understand that if we have pilgrim as in walking down the road, pilgrimage on our thing, we are to be the kind of pilgrims that don't cross by to the other side of the road. We are to be the pilgrims that on our journey when we see people beaten and bloodied by life or circumstances, we enter in because Jesus' Spirit is living within us and we become part of the ministry of the good Samaritan. We become Jesus to people. Even if it costs us. 
Even if it means changing our plans, even if it means throwing out our religious list, we enter in. And Jesus said to the lawyer, he said, go and do likewise. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And who is your neighbor? Your neighbor is all of those and anyone that God calls and brings in your path. Your neighbor is an ever-expanding circle. Your neighbor is not a list that you can nail down. It's a list that the Holy Spirit gives before you, and it will be an ever-expanding list because the Spirit of God tears down walls, and the kingdom of God is known by righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Spirit, and moves outward, continually outward. Welcome the Good Samaritan on the road of your journey this morning. Would you stand with me today? Let's, let's pray. Since I get to preach for three weeks, I gave you a little more. Okay. I promise I'll reel it back next Sunday. And I'd like the worship team to come up during this as well as we pray and then we'll move into time of communion. Lord, we thank you today for this opportunity we have to worship. And Lord, I am challenged by the story of the Good Samaritan because I know full well that at least in certain stages of my Christian journey before some deconstruction and reconstruction that I was the priest, I was the Levite. But Lord, I thank you that you show us that when you encounter death and brokenness, you're not changed by death and brokenness other than to have compassion, but death and brokenness is healed by your presence. That your presence reverses, that your presence brings life, that your presence pours out love. And instead of being driven by fear and false holiness, Lord, may we understand that your presence within us makes the unclean, quote-unquote, clean that your power is greater. And so we want to welcome that power into our lives today. Come Holy Spirit, do your work in us. May we align ourselves with you, the ultimate good Samaritan. Thank you for your healing and your mercy. And may we go and do likewise. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen and amen.